All right. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. This will, what we're going to do this hour is we're going to conclude the Bible study exercise that we have been working on all week. And the text has been Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21 primarily. I introduced this next week. I mean, I know this is really the beginning of a new week, but we're concluding last week's Bible study exercise. And yesterday I introduced this week's Bible study exercise, which we're going to be in the Gospel of John now for six weeks. And then after that, we'll be in Matthew 24 for six weeks. So that's what we're doing for the Bible study exercise. If you care to participate, um, you, well, just listen to the podcast. And if you need any help with anything, let me know. All right, but we sometimes I use the uh, services to conclude or introduce our Bible study exercises, and this I really want to use this hour to really hopefully uh, make everyone understand the significance of what we are talking about. So let's do this. Let's go to the text before we do anything else. Genesis chapter fifty. Genesis chapter fifty. As you turn to Genesis chapter fifty, remember the Bible study exercise that we worked on for the last. Uh, well, a little over a month, has been on the subject of spiritual pitfalls. Spiritual pitfalls. We looked at the following spiritual pitfalls during that Bible study exercise series. We looked at the spiritual pitfall of betrayal, the spiritual pitfall of temptation, the spiritual pitfall of injustice, the spiritual pitfall of hard times, the spiritual pitfall of bitterness, the spiritual pitfall of guilt, and the spiritual pitfall of unforgiveness. Now, when we talk about a spiritual pitfall, we're talking about something that, in a sense, it's kind of camouflage. You don't see it. And the next thing you know, you're down in a pit trying to crawl yourself out spiritually. We worked through all of these. We spent lots of hours and time. I don't even know how many hours of broadcast and podcast episodes that that all that that entails. But there was a lot of work done. There were assignments given out, and there was curriculum. And for all of those who participated, thank you. Hopefully, you benefited from it. But we wrap all of this up by coming to Genesis chapter fifty. And when we come to Genesis chapter fifty, let's remind ourselves of something. The main character of this narrative, going back to around chapter thirty-nine, is Joseph. Joseph was the favorite son. Everything was great for Joseph. He was the favorite son. He had the coat of many colors. He was even getting dreams that that everybody was going to bow down to him. Everything was wonderful. Everything was great. But who wasn't happy about Joseph's position? His brothers. His brothers were upset. His brothers were bothered. His brothers felt messed over. Right? And we can all agree and understand why. And so they come up with a plot. They think about killing him and they ultimately do what? Sell him, sell him into slavery. I really want you, now I want you to really think about this, okay? I really want you to think about this. Think about all the bad things that people have done to you, said about you. Think about the, the different things that, that people will do to you that will make you upset and you'll, you'll strike back either verbally, you'll get upset, you'll get, you get mad. Think of all the horrible things that's ever been done to you. It's going to, in most cases, Now, some of us have gone through some really messed up things, but in most cases, what Joseph went through is pretty extreme, even probably for most of us who've gone through some pretty messed up things. Agreed? It's pretty extreme. His brothers want him dead, and he's sold as a slave. He ends up in slavery. Now, things seem to go somewhat well for him as it can in slavery, but then the next thing you know, he's falsely accused of something, right? And where does he end up? 
He ends up in prison. That's bad enough to be in prison, yes? He's in prison, and then he's able to interpret dreams, and he says, what? Remember me, right? Remember me. And then what happens? He's forgotten in prison. He's forgotten. That's, that. now you're really upset, yes? Now, finally, he gets remembered, and he ends up where? Second in charge in Egypt. And he's able to interpret a dream, and that dream explains to him what is going to happen. There's going to be seven good years and seven bad years. Seven good years and seven bad years, right? And so he helps Egypt prepare that, look, during the good years, let's store up and let's have plenty ready, because when the seven bad years come of famine, then we'll have plenty of food. So, everything happens exactly like Joseph said it was going to happen. Well, guess what? Back where his family is, there's famine. And they need what? Food. So the brothers are sent to whom? They're sent to Egypt, and who they end up coming in contact with? Joseph. And then there's this long narrative where Joseph does what? There's a, he, he cries seven different times. Remember that? And we talked about what kind of structure is that in the Bible? A chiastic structure, right? And that these seven follow a pattern, right? And we, we interpreted that pattern. Very important stuff. Very, very important stuff. Especially from biblical hermeneutics, right? So we, we took that all apart. And finally, we get to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50, after all of this emotional, Joseph has played games with them. There's all this back and forth. And then finally, what do we read? Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will preadventure hate us and will certainly require, requite us all the evil which we did unto him. His brothers were holding out hope that what was going to keep them out of trouble? Their father, because their father loved Joseph, and Joseph loved their father. So their hope, okay, we're, we're going to be good, but now that the father is dead, what do they feel is going to happen? That Joseph's going to come for us now. They're worried, they're scared, right? Verse uh, 16, and they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, the father did command before he died, saying, so like, hey, before, hey, send a messenger to Joseph. Hey, Joseph, we want you to know that before your dad passed away, before our father died, he had a message. He had a message. And what was that message? So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept, when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Verse 19, Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spake kindly unto them. The story, think about it this way. The story, the story begins with Joseph as the favorite. He ends up a, 
almost you know, threatened to be killed, a prisoner, falsely accused. All of these horrible things happen, but it ultimately ends with Joseph doing what? Forgiving those who did all of those things to him. Now, what we typically do right here is then, it's really simple. I could, we could be done right now. I could say, well, you need to be like Joseph and forgive people who do bad things to you. And everybody was like, okay, right? And we all say that, we all, we all say we're supposed to, but then we all find ourselves doing what? Not doing that, yes. We have a trouble doing it. Yes, we have a difficult problem with forgiving. Now, some of you may be better at it, but I, sometimes it, it, it all depends, right? I think, I think some people are good at it, but then when you talk to them, they really haven't experienced that, you know, the, the worst thing someone ever did to them is eat, you know, the, the, the last, you know, the last bowl of Captain Crunch. That's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. You know, someone ate the oatmeal cookies when they wanted one. Okay, that's not a lot to forgive, right? It's easy to be good at forgiveness, right? For, think of it this way. It's easy to be good. It would be, it's easy for me to be good at basketball playing Lincoln and Levi. I can think I'm the greatest basketball player in the world. I mean, like, boom, get away, Lincoln. Get away, Levi. What are you? You're nothing. I'm better than all of you. I'm the greatest. Because I'm playing them. Yes? It's easy to be like, I'm good at forgiving. And you're like, and the worst thing that ever happened was what? Okay, but when you've experienced hor- something horrific and horrible, that really tests how strong you are in forgiving. So I just want you to think right now, before we even proceed here, when it comes to forgiving others, what do you think? How, how would you rate yourself? How would you rate yourself? Zero being you just, you don't forgive anyone for anything. In fact, right now you've got a list in your back pocket of everyone who's ever done you wrong and you're ready to get them back any minute, okay? Like right now you may strike, okay? That's zero. Ten is like you are just... You forgive. Where, where are you in that scale? Now, I want to make sure you understand this. For if the lack of forgiveness will be a spiritual pit that you will fall in and will derail your Christian life. Now, sometimes we sell forgiveness as you want to forgive others because it's better for your mental health. That's typically the way the world approaches it, right? Hey, if you don't forgive, it's going to hurt you. There may be truth to that, I don't know if that's still a biblical idea. You'll see how I'm going to approach this in a minute. But I want you to think about where you are in your level of forgiveness. Now, you may think you're great at it. You may think you're great at it, but a lot of, a lot of times you'll know, like, when you have an argument or fight with someone, right? Sometimes that, that's at least the reason you're involved. Remember, it takes two to fight, right? It takes two to argue. Yes? So anytime you're in an argument or a fight, even with your kids, spouse, it's, it requires both. Even if you think the other person is 99% responsible, you're the one still engaging in the fight. And sometimes if we were very quick to forgive, we would just, whatever they said, whatever they did, we would just immediately forgive. And most likely, it would not lead to the problem in the first place. Now, we may forgive after, but sometimes we're, it takes us a minute to even forgive. We have to be almost in a constant attitude of forgiveness because if we're not it causes us major problems right now here's what i want you to think about i want you to take the subject forgiveness 
And there's, there's constant studies on this, but it's constantly stated that the average person sitting in a pew does not have a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview. They've, I don't know how many statistics have to come out. They'll call, ask people if they go to church, do they believe this, do they believe this, and they'll ask them basic questions, and then Christians will speak, and they'll go, that's not a biblical worldview. What in the world? And remember, I keep talking about the problems that have happened to the American church when it comes to Christian worldviews. What, what tends to formulate people's worldview more than Bible and theology? Someone said it? Culture? What else? Politics, that's been a major one since 2015. Next, family, where you're raised. Right? A lot of, again, you can take a Christian who is born and raised here in West Texas. I can then go to Seattle, Portland, talk to Christians there. Isn't it amazing how different they see the world? Should there be a difference between Christians in West Texas and Christians in Seattle or Portland? In theory, there should be none because our worldview is not determined by the city which we live. It's supposed to be determined by this. That always bothers me greatly. So, I want you to think about this. In church history, I think there were three things that were instrumental in formulating a Christian worldview that was given to every Christian and they were used for catechesis purposes. That's the idea of catechizing or instructing, teaching. And every, in fact, it was almost required that everyone knew these and had these memorized. At least one of them was required to be memorized or you couldn't even be baptized in the early church. What are these three things? I sometimes refer to them as the golden chain of early Christianity. The Apostles' Creed. The Ten Commandments. And the Lord's Prayer. Many systematic theologies, catechisms are built on those three things. In other words, this is the way. You learn those three, you memorize those three things. This is the way it was built. You memorize it, then you're catechized on it. In other words, you do question and answers on them, and then you do systematic theology based on them. So it was just going over those same three things. Now, everyone, if you have the Trinity hymnal, grab the Trinity hymnal. And I want you to look in the back of the Trinity hymnal, find the page for the Apostles' Creed. I don't have it memorized what page it is. When you find it, let me know. What is it? 845. Very good. 845. This is the first thing that was very critical in the early church, the Apostles' Creed. Why was the Apostles' Creed so important in the early church? What did they not have? They didn't have Bibles. In fact, they didn't even have a completed canon yet. All right, so that's, that's a big one. All right. Okay, that's why it was important. Number two, a lot of the people couldn't do what? Couldn't read, even if they had a Bible, right? And so number three, what, what makes it so powerful is anyone can memorize the Apostles' Creed. Even a little kid can memorize the Apostles' Creed. And why were the creeds so important? What did they provide? Next time you drive on the highway, right? Just veer over a little bit to the right. What do you hear? <laughs> Right, there's rumble strips, right? What are they there to do? Tell you, stop looking at your phone. Get back on the road, right? Wake up. The, the, the creeds are the rumble strips of theology. When you start veering up, oh, God, man, where am I going? Okay, you're going somewhere. Get back on the road. Get back on the road. Stay here, right? The creeds are to keep you on the road, right? But they were helped to establish a 
Christian worldview. I know you're like, what does this have to do with forgiveness? Just stay with me, right? How does the Apostles' Creed begin? I believe God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Stop right there. What does the creed begin with? I want you to write that down. The Apostles' Creed begins with God. Everybody got that? Begins with God. I know that's deep, isn't it? You're like, what does that have to do with forgiveness? Stay with me. Stay with me. All right, stay with me. So far, so good? All right, now open your Bibles and turn to the Ten Commandments. Does everybody know where they are found? Book of Exodus, chapter 20. Okay, good. All right, Exodus chapter 20. And what do you find? I think verse. I think it's verse two where the first commandment appears. It may be verse three. I'm going from memory. Okay, what's the first? Is it verse two or three? Verse two. Okay, everybody, read verse two out loud. I want to hear everybody. I am the Lord thy God. Brought you out of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Where did the Ten Commandments begin with? God. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so the creed begins with God. The Ten Commandments begin with God. I think we're getting on to something here. Let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Anybody know where that's found? It's in Luke and in Matthew. You can go to the Matthew passage if you want. I believe it's chapter 6, going from memory. Okay. Some, some are saying it. I hear some saying it. That's good. Sometimes referred to the Lord's Prayer. Some, some would argue it's the, actually the disciples' prayer. Since the disciples who prayed it. Okay. But it's the Lord who taught it. So. All right. And what does it begin with? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does the uh, Lord's Prayer begin with? God. Isn't that interesting? That's interesting, right? All three things begin with God. So what's the first critical concept of having a Christian worldview? A right understanding of God. If your understanding of God is wrong, your understanding of everything else is wrong. That's why, early on, what was the most important study in academics? Remember, what was the, what was the king of academics? Theology. What was the queen? Philosophy. You can't have right philosophy until you have right theology, because right theology gives you correct understanding of philosophy, right? You have to have a right understanding of God. Now, why would I go there when we're getting ready to deal with forgiveness. Because I'm going to, I, I want you to, you can do a little flow chart if you want. You can make a little flow chart if you want, okay? All right, here we go. This is how it works. When it comes to our flow chart of forgive, forgiveness, guess what it begins with? God. Because you will not have a correct understanding of forgiveness until you have a correct understanding of God. A wrong understanding of God you will have a wrong understanding of forgiveness. It, look, you will either understand forgiveness in light of God, or you will understand forgiveness based off what 
a counselor will tell you or a psychologist will tell you. By no means am I saying it's wrong to see a counselor or a psychologist. What I'm saying is that to get a biblical understanding, you have to start with a right understanding of God. So when we start with God, that's the first, right? When we think of God and forgiveness, what do we think about when we think of God and forgiveness? Our understanding of forgiveness must be derived from understanding God and we see God as what? This is key. What, when it comes to the flowchart of forgiveness, what is God? The source of forgiveness. Yes? It is God who forgives. It is God who brings forgiveness. Let's just go, we'll just look at a couple of scriptures. Go to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I'm just going to look at like a what I'm just going to maybe just look at one right here. We may try to circle back and go through all of the scriptures that I have here. Isaiah chapter 1. Start in verse uh, 18. We'll just read verse 18. Isaiah 1, 18. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord... Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Where is uh, forgiveness found? In God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness is found in God. To understand forgiveness, you have to understand God. In other words, this is what I'm trying to say. It's typically the church approaches it from the wrong, we, we approach it from man and then move to God. In other words, we approach it that they preach a sermon and say, look, if you don't forgive someone, you're going to have problems with this and you're going to have problems with this and it's going to make your life worse. We start with a man perspective. No, we need to start with a God perspective. Remember, if we read the entire story of, Je- of, J- of Joseph from Genesis 39 to Genesis 50, when he finally forgives his brother, right? He says two important statements in Genesis 50. I read them to you. What were those two important statements? I kept telling everyone during the entire time of study about these two verses. He tells them, am I in the place of God? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. His whole handling of it started with his understanding of God. He would not have handled the situation correctly if he did not have a correct understanding of God. Everything starts with a correct understanding of God. So we have to start our discussion about forgiveness with a correct understanding of God. God is the source of forgiveness and God is how we understand forgiveness. Does that make sense? So your understanding of forgiveness has to be derived from God. He's the source of it. All right, does that make sense? All right, so now we look to God and we're like, God is a God of mercy and he will forgive sin. Great. Then, if you go from your flow chart, from God, and then what would be after God? Us. Now immediately when we look to us, what should we see? We start by looking at God, right? Now, the minute I look at God, what do I see? Well, let me state it this way. Okay, very important. 
when I see God as he truly is. I see myself as I truly am. I can never understand me until I understand God. If you want a correct understanding of yourself, it demands a correct understanding of God. That's why theology is the most important academic course of study there ever was. See, I, I realized that everyone else was studying things that was a waste of time, and I studied theology because I picked the right course of study, okay? It's the right one, not math! Okay, for those math people, okay? You chose the wrong thing to study, okay? It, math is evil, theology is right, okay? But in seriousness, though, theology is how I understand me. Now, guess what happens? I go, I'm going I'm to study theology. I'm going to study theology. Ooh, there's God, high and lifted up. And immediately, what are going to be the next words when I see God, high and lifted up? I'm borrowing from Isaiah 6, if you don't know what to say here. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm disintegrating in the presence of a holy God. Now, immediately, what do I see? If I see God, he's the source of forgiveness, I understand forgiveness, and then I see me, and I realize that I am in need of the forgiveness that can only be found in God. If you're going to have a correct understanding of forgiveness, it must always start with you. Listen, if you're going to have a correct understanding of forgiveness, it must start with you being completely aware of your need for forgiveness. When we talk about forgiveness, we always talk about our forgiving others, right? Or other people forgiving us. You can never have a correct understanding until you see yourself as an undeserving person who needs a forgiveness that you cannot earn, you do not deserve, and you should never have. When you start talking about forgiveness, you must see yourself as a person who needs a forgiveness that you cannot earn, you do not deserve. Do you truly see yourself as someone who needs forgiveness and does not, does not, you see yourself as someone who needs it and realize you can't earn it and you do not deserve it? Do you truly see yourself that way? Now you see where you see how this is building? I start with a correct understanding of God. That's the only hope for, for forgiveness is in God. I see that when I see God as He is, I see myself as I am, right? The only way I can truly see myself is I gotta see God as He truly is. When I see God as He truly is, then I, mean, I realize, man, I, I'm in trouble. Now, once I see myself, and if I truly, like if someone says, what, what's the, tell me about you. The fir- if someone says, tell me something about you, your first word should be, I am a person desperately need of forgiveness that I cannot earn and I do not deserve. If that's not the first thing you think of when you think of yourself, you do not have a Christian worldview. When, you, when someone says, tell me about you, I am a person who needs forgiveness, I cannot earn it, and I do not deserve it. If you don't truly feel that, if you do not truly see that, then I'm t- I'm, we, just, we should just stop, close everything down, go home, because you're never going to understand forgiveness. 
If you start with that concept, man, the whole concept of forgiveness starts changing dramatically, doesn't it? It starts changing dramatically. Because who needs forgiveness more than anyone? You should see, what should your answer be? Me. Now, we have a tendency to look around at every, and we're good at pointing at everyone who we want to condemn. We may look at everyone and think that they need forgiveness, but who needs it more than anyone? You. You're like, but, 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 I, I haven't done what they've, doesn't matter if you haven't done what they've done. You are a sinner who deserves eternal punishment. If you start there, your entire world view changes, Right? Look, anytime you're ready to run to the window to go condemn the people out there, you may want to stop and go look in the mirror and go, well, never mind. Never mind. Okay. I've already seen the the really guilty person and I found them in the mirror. I thought the people outside the window, I thought they were really messed up. Then I realized I looked in the mirror and I'm like, man, woe is me, I'm undone. We don't feel that, do we? We start feeling an air of of self-righteousness of moral superiority. When Christianity becomes a source of your moral superiority, I don't think you found biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity should always make you feel that you're morally inferior because you realize how much of a sinner you are. But you know what? We, we don't make... I'm going to tell you this. Most churches do not put theology first. They put us first. It's all about us. Once Christianity becomes about you and not about God, you will not see yourself as you truly are because you have not seen God as He truly is. And once you don't see God as He truly is, then you get an inflated estimation of who you are. Again, I'll go back. I can think I'm the greatest basketball player in the world if all I've ever played is Lincoln and Levi. I mean, I can just knock them over, take the ball from them, laugh at them. I can talk trash to them. They can't do anything to me. Right? I mean, what are they going to do? They can go, Mommy, Daddy. I'm like, hey, Mommy, Daddy can't help you. You're on the basketball court. You're mine, right? I can, I can talk all the trash I want. But then all of a sudden... An NBA player comes on. I'm like, well, I think I got to go now. I think, uh, okay. Oh, because I'm, all of a sudden, what's, going that, what's that going to reveal? Once I see a person who's a professional basketball player, I'm going to see my limitations are going to become glaring quickly. Yes? When you're confronted with God, then hmm, you see. So I, I cannot, so the whole, I, I cannot stress this. The whole concept of forgiveness hinges on you seeing God first and seeing your need second. And when you see your need, you need to see how undeserving you are. Until you have that right. It's, th- think about this. Now, I, I know this, this is why nobody ever calls me for counsel, right? But if you're like, something horrible happened to you, right? And you called me and said, Pastor, I, I'm, I'm struggling with forgiveness. I need to talk to you. I would start with, okay, let's start with this. What's your understanding of God? And then I want you to tell me about you. Don't tell me about the person who hurt you. Don't tell me about the person who messed you over. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear about you. And if you don't say, well, I am 
a, a sinner who doesn't deserve forgiveness, until you say those words, we can't talk about the other person. Because once we get that established, that other person is going to, you're going to have a completely different approach to them, yes? Amen? Very important. All right. So, in our flow chart, we start with God, then it comes to us. Then, guess where it goes? What's the third thing? Others. Now it comes to other people. Other people who have hurt us. Other people who have let us down, betrayed us sold us into slavery, threw us in a pit because they planned on killing us. Those who have forgotten us in prison, those who've really messed us over. Now, once you finally look to them, in what way are you going to see them? What do you think? Are you going to see them more undeserving than you? Because you are comparing what they've done to you. Please know, if, if I take Austin and Austin's done something really messed up to me, right, and she's really hurt me, and I look to her and I'm like, man, she's really messed over. If I've spent my time looking at God and seeing myself, when I look to her, her sin against me, no matter how me- messed up it is, pales in comparison to my sin against the eternal creator. That changes my perspective in what way? In a dramatic way. Does that lessen what she's done? No. Do I, can I still acknowledge that it hurt me? Can I still, I, by all means, it's perfectly right to talk, talk about that pain and that suffering. But I see it differently. I see it with a different pair of glasses. I see it in a completely different way. Has everybody got that? Now, we're called to do what for other people? Oh, come on. Everybody should know what to say here. How are we to forgive others? We are to forgive others as Christ hath forgiven us. So even my forgiving of someone else is based off the forgiveness I have received from God. So guess what? I can't even begin to forgive someone else until I understand the forgiveness I have received from God. So what is required to forgive others? A correct understanding of God and the forgiveness I have received. Now, my, the only one sin against God, only, only one, in fact, for even forget a sin, I'm already born guilty in Adam, okay? But just think, the very first sin you've ever committed should separate you from God throughout all eternity, and he's forgiven you how many times? Millions! Now, if I'm to forgive others as I have been forgiven, that changes my entire perspective on forgiveness, Yes? You see why we're working the flow chart? Now, I want to stop right here and remind you of something we talked about last time. And a lot of people felt very, um, a lot of people were like, this is some pretty powerful stuff, okay? When we, if we fail to forgive other people, 
If we do not forgive other people, it manifests itself in three ways. This is how you know how good you are at forgiving other people or not forgiving other people. Okay? So you think of someone who's really messed you over. You think of someone who's hurt you. In no way am I minimizing what they have done. and Because I, I, I don't want anyone listening to this going, man, you don't know what happened to me. I, I don't. And I won't say that I could understand. All I can say is I can tell you stories about things that happened to me that are horrific and horrible and nobody wants to hear about. So I know what it is to suffer at the hands of people you don't think you should suffer from. All right? I I spent eight weeks in a psychiatric hospital after trying to kill myself because of everything that happened. So I'm very aware of how bad life can be. So I'm not minimizing anything that anyone's done to you. All I'm saying is if you don't forgive, this will be some of the ways it will manifest itself. What was the first one? The interpersonal, interpersonal dimension. The interpersonal dimension. Or intrapersonal dimension, I'm sorry. The intrapersonal dimension. Intrapersonal. Not inter, intrapersonal. All right? Intrapersonally means within, intra, ourselves, personal. When we don't forgive... We leverage an offense against someone within our mind and attitudes. You may be thinking, what does this look like? It looks like writing a narrative about this person that reduces them to their offense and evaluates the rest of their life through the lens of that offense. Simply put, and an intrapersonal dimension of, of unforgiveness in a roundabout way, what do you do? Okay, we'll go back to Austin. It's messed me up. She's done something horrible to me. I write a narrative, know them for one thing. That's, that's the, the better the writing, the more complex the character. The better the movie or television show, the more complex the character. If you reduce the, but in life, we reduce people to their mistake. When you just reduce someone to their, and that's all you see, is for, for, for then on, they're the person who did whatever they did. If you will not, if all you can see is their mistake, you have not forgiven them. You won't let them be anything other than their mistake. You can't do that. And let me tell you, it's not easy. When I had to write the letter to my mother, and go to her grave to read it to her as a teenager, All that at that point, my mom was nothing more than every mistake and everything she did against me. That's all she was. Now, after all of these years, now I can tell stories about my mom did this or did that, and now I can try to see her beyond just those mistakes. It took me, I don't know, 40 years to try to figure it out, so I'm not saying this is easy, but... Until you, as long as you're reducing the person to that, and you know when it happens, someone's name will be brought up, or you see them, or you hear about them, and all you can think about, all, you reduce them to what? Whatever they've done to you. Sometimes that happens when you get upset with your spouse or your child. When you're upset with them, and, the ne- and they come walking back into the kitchen, you're just like, get out of my face, because at that moment, all, what are they? The mistake, the thing that they've done. I mean, we've all done it, right? Yeah, okay, maybe I'm the only one. Okay, okay, okay. but I, I, we, we've all done it. 
Right? That's intrapersonal. Does everybody, everybody remember that one? Okay. This can even happen when the pattern of unforgiveness becomes more destructive when it generalizes an entire population. The person you hurt is now representative of all men or of all women. Sometimes a woman will do this. She's been hurt by a man. All men! Okay, come on. Come on now. That's not, that's not, you haven't forgiven obviously the man because you've now reduced all man, all men to that man or you've reduced all women to that woman. And that's just, that's on you. That's not on, that, that, that's, that's your problem that you, you're, you're now guilty of. And we, this can happen to race. It can happen to everywhere. You cannot reduce someone to that level. We'll come back to this one in a minute. Okay. Everybody got that? All right. Um, the, that's the intrapersonal. And then what was the second one? Interpersonal. And what does this mean? All right. This is where we can leverage an offense against someone by the expectations we place on them or the special rules we expect to govern the relationship. We're like, okay, you did, Austin, you did that to me? Well, here's the thing. If we're going to have a relationship now, here's the rules. You better follow these rules or our friendship is over. We do that, right? Now, let's remember, someone can hurt you. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It's not wrong for you to go and say, hey, Austin, I'm going to have a hard time trusting you, okay? I'm going to have a hard time, right? Broken in my house, you stole my stereo equipment. The fact that you're still breathing is, is a miracle, okay? Because anyone touches that dies, Okay. So uh, the fact, the only reason I haven't killed you is because I don't want to go to jail, okay? That's the only reason. I don't even know if I've really forgiven you yet, okay? But I know this. I don't ever want you near my house again, okay? Right? Because I can't trust you. But I'm, I'm working on it. But the fact that I put any rule shows that I still haven't forgiven. It's okay to say, hey, I'm not, I don't know if I really trust you yet. It's okay to say that. It's okay to say that and say, here's what I need you to do to help me. That's okay. But when you say that, what do you need to acknowledge? You may not have forgiven. Because if you forgive, what happens to that? It goes away. Does that make sense? Yes? It's hard, it's hard not to do that. But I want to make sure it's okay to, to struggle with that. What's the third one? The social dimension. Now, the social dimension is where we leverage an offense socially by speaking negatively of the person who hurt us in order to harm their reputation. Oh, man, this happens. Two people are sitting somewhere. Two people are sitting there somewhere. You're having lunch, and someone brings up a name. And someone's like, oh, did you hear what they did? Did you hear what they... If you start talking about what someone else did, you've not shown any forgiveness to them. And you not only that, you've, you've kind of gone back to the first problem. You're reducing them to that, but you're now using that social interaction to always badmouth them and always talk about them and to destroy their reputation because you won't let the person be anything other than their reputation. That is not forgiveness. That is not forgiveness. Now, let's go back. What are the three areas of forgiveness, of, of, of unforgiveness, we should call them? Intra, inter, and social. Now, 
Let's think about, remember, how do we need to have a correct view of forgiveness? Where does it start? God. Then we see ourselves. All right. God is the source of forgiveness. Okay. Now, has anybody here been forgiven by God? Yes. Right? When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. We've been cleansed of all unrighteousness. Let me see how this works. Does God reduce us to our sin? I'll prove he doesn't. You want proof? Anybody ever read Hebrews chapter 11? Everyone reads Hebrews chapter 11 in such a messed up way in the church. Oh, look at these people. See, their faith, their faith proves this. Their faith proves that. And I'm I'm looking at you going, but you know what's missing in that chapter? Not one time is their sin mentioned. Go grab Hebrews 11. Look at it. Name all the people who are mentioned. Just go through it. Just start, go to Hebrews 11. Just start, tell me the first person who's mentioned in Hebrews 11. Let's play this game really quick. I'm not even looking at a clock, so um, I know that's dangerous. Oh, wow. Okay. I got to move quickly. All right. Okay, I didn't even realize that. I'm, I'm, I'm just having a good old time, just talking, like, okay. And all of a sudden, I just realized that, you know what I'm doing? I'm giving you an opportunity to forgive me. Okay. See, I'm going to help you put this into practice, because at this point, we're going to end next week. Okay. So, go through them really quick. Who's the first one mentioned? Abraham. Or Abel. Okay, Abel. Okay. Now, Abel's a good guy. Okay, so we have no problem with Abel, right? Okay. He's the one who's murdered, right? Okay. So, all right. Do I? Enoch. Okay. Next. Noah. Oh, now stop right there. Noah, Noah. You see, how does it all work out for Noah? Oh, he builds an ark. That's great. What does he do when he gets off the ark? He gets drunk and nude. Right? Drunk and takes off all of his clothes, right? Which then creates a problem with whatever goes down with the brothers, right? With the sons, right? Okay? We can get a whole discussion there. We'll go through all that, okay? Right? That, that's just left out, isn't it? Well, why? You know how we would do, you know what we would be? We'd be the ones sitting there at, at you know, the buffet after church and someone would bring up Noah and go, oh, Noah, you know, <laughs> you know what he did? He got drunk and took off all of his clothes. That's what we would talk about. God's like, man of faith. Who's next? We'd be like, Abraham, oh, did you hear? Did you hear? He had an adulterous relationship with Hagar. Man's an adulterer. He's an adulterer. And you know what else he did? When he was traveling with his wife, they got in a dangerous situation, and he was like, not my wife. Man's a coward. A liar. He's an adulterer. He's a liar. He's a coward. That's what good Christians would tell everyone. God, he leaves that out, doesn't he? What's next? Mo- oh, you see, Moses, oh, he murdered someone and hid the body. He's a murderer for crying out loud. Oh, what else did he do? He struck the rock and didn't even get to go into the promised land. We would be like, Moses was a failure. He didn't finish strong. He didn't finish the race. He's a failure. Why is that left out? Now, what, who, who, name some other people. Isaac? Oh, he had some of the same issues, lying. 
Where do we want to start with Jacob? Anybody want to know where we want to start with Jacob? I mean, man, we got, we could pick things. Joseph is mentioned, I believe, right? Okay, okay. Rahab. Oh, she was a a harlot. Okay, Sarah. Next, Sarah laughed, right? Okay, she laughed, doubting God. Yes. Next, Gideon, Samson, <laughs> Samson for crying out loud, Samson. Yeah, man, that's what a. What a great guy. What a great David. We would remember all we would reduce all of these people to their failures. We would reduce them there and we would tell everyone about them. No matter how many times they repented, that's what we, we would still be talking about them. There, there's, there's people probably still talking about sins you've committed. There's still people talking about sins I've committed. Now, that doesn't excuse your sin. That doesn't excuse my sin. Hopefully, we've dealt with it. We've repented of it. But at some point, you can't be reduced to your sin for the rest of your life because God doesn't even do that with people in the Bible. He puts all of them in the chapter we call the heroes of faith. All the heroes of faith were sinners. And God did not reduce them to their sin. He saw them in light of the righteousness that was imputed upon them. We cannot reduce people that way. We cannot. If you do that, you have not forgiven others. Does that make sense? You can't do that. You've got to see other people. Think of this. I've got to try to wrap this up now because I didn't realize how much time had already passed, so I apologize. So I want you to think of this. To have a correct understanding of forgiveness, we have to look where? We have to look to God. Once we see God, what do we then see? Us. And when we see ourselves, we see people who need forgiveness, who do not deserve it and cannot earn it. Once we figure that out, then we see all the other people who've done things to us. We should see them in light of our need of forgiveness from God, right? That should change the way we view this. But what we have to be careful of is those three wrong ways of handling it. What are they? Intra, enter, and socially. Don't reduce them. Don't place rules. Does God place rules on you? In a sense that if you do, you better do this and this and this and this. No, he gives us commandments, but my forgiveness is not based on me keeping those commandments. It's based off the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? And he doesn't reduce me to that. We cannot do that to other people. Right? Then, one last thing. And then you can circle it back in your flow chart, back to us. I can't speak for you. As much as I struggle sometimes forgiving others, in some cases, I can never forgive myself. It's almost like a psychological disorder I have. I, 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 I can just be driving the car and I can just, I remember every mistake I've ever made, every sin I've ever made. And, it's like, and I will literally talk to myself, man, I've messed up so much in my life. I've messed up so much in my life. Now, I want to make sure this is very important. The only way you can handle your own sin is you have to acknowledge it and you have to accept responsibility for it. But at some point, you have to see yourself not in light of your sin, but in your position in Christ. 
And my position in Christ is what? It's the verse everyone misapplies. If anyone's in Christ, new creature, old things are passed away, all things have become new. That's not true practically because I still have a sinful nature. That's true positionally. So I have to constantly remind myself, yes, I have sinned and I've made, a mis- I've made horrible mistakes and there's no excuse and I don't make any excuse. But in Christ, I am perfectly forgiven and I'm perfectly righteous. That's the only way you'll ever be able to move forward in your life or you'll be overwhelmed with guilt that will destroy you. Now, guilt needs to break us to make us repent, but we must be able to move past that. Other people may never let you move past it. They may reduce, that's because they won't forgive you. But you know what? Other people's unforgiveness of you does not change the forgiveness which you have received from God. Oh, I wish other people would forgive me. I wish other people would stop reducing me to my mistakes. But you know what? I can't fix that. Because I know that in Christ, that's why. And guess how it's supposed to work within the church? If you claim to be a Christian, right? How am I to view you? As a new creature in Christ, the old is gone and everything is new. Is that true practically? No. But that's how I'm to view you. That doesn't mean I ignore your sin. I may have to deal with your sin. You may have to deal with my sin. And we deal with each other. There may be consequences. We have to, you know, deal with it, repent, struggle with it. But guess what? Even after I'm, even in the midst of dealing, say Bobby does something horrible, even in the midst of dealing with his sin, what should I always see Bobby as first? New creature in Christ. Everything's gone. I see the imputed righteousness of Christ. Not the practical manifestation of his sin. That doesn't mean I ignore it, but I still view him that way. In other words, I can't reduce everyone in this church to their sin. And hopefully, you don't see me in light of my sin. Doesn't mean we ignore each other's sins. We deal with it, but we have to get past doing that, right? You got to get past that. You can't reduce someone to their actions. It's just, it's amazing that we, we don't do that to people in the Bible. I've said it so many times. We'll go to a Sunday school class and say, all right, kids, today we're going to learn the Proverbs because Proverbs will give you great wisdom. And we seem to forget that Proverbs was written by a man who was a serial adulterer. Not just once. It's always, it's, what always blows me away is people are like, well, see, David committed adultery, but there was consequences. So he couldn't build the temple. So, so that means there's consequences that can happen to someone whose ministry who commits a sin. Well, slow down. Because the next person who built the temple made David's adultery look like he was just practicing. Because Solomon had how many concubines? Right, a lot. He was living in adultery. But we we, we don't reduce him to that, do we? We see him as the wisest man who ever lived who gave us the Proverbs. A Proverbs a day keeps the devil away. That, That kind of thing, right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't see you that way? And just remember, those of us who've received such a great forgiveness should be the first to give such a great forgiveness. All right, we'll stop right there. Look, God, we come before you this afternoon. This is such an important concept. I hope we leave here today with a biblical worldview on forgiveness instead of a worldly view. We may never, ever truly 
understand it correctly and practice it rightly. But I pray that we would be convicted by this. And we thank you for all of the studies we did in Genesis and all of the spiritual pitfalls. Hopefully this will help us avoid them. And I pray that you will have everyone ready for this next week of study as we turn uh, to the Gospel of John. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...